We all crave connection. At our core, we all want to feel loved and understood. Hi, I'm Nechami, founder of Carmela Cosmetics, a company that produces high-performance natural beauty products and is dedicated to uniting and empowering women through the power of color. This is We Are Women, a podcast where women speak their truth and celebrate their victories. This podcast came about as a way to give a voice to all women because we all have stories to share. It's a place where we'll learn about each other and ourselves, dive into important issues that affect us, discover all that we have in common, and make some memories. So pour yourself a glass of bread and get comfortable. Every night is ladies' night, and we are women. When I first heard Katie Blanchard's story of discrimination, bullying, and abuse, I knew I had to have her on the show. Growing up in a loving military family, when it came time for Katie to choose her own career, she continued in her family's path as a military nurse. And at the same time that she was raising her beautiful family, Katie was putting her heart and soul into her career as a military nurse, taking care of and supporting veterans and soldiers. During this episode, Katie shares her story of discrimination that rocked her career and almost led to her losing her life. Katie's message for women of hope, empowerment, and inspiration will inspire you and help you gain the courage to be proactive and change trajectory of violence for women in the workplace, helping to create a safer environment where women are truly heard. Please be aware that in this episode, we speak about violent behavior, abuse and bullying. So if this is a topic that's a trigger or unhealthy for you to listen to, please feel free to skip this episode and we'll see you next time. So I moved around a lot as a child. I was actually, both of my parents are active duty military. And so I was always outside. I was very much a tomboy and um, I'm into my hobbies include riding horses and I played lacrosse and volleyball and kind of just kept really busy. Nice. So what made you go into the field that you chose to go into? So my mom is actually an army nurse. And so I grew up, um, she was deployed during my, what would it be? Junior, senior year, most of my senior year as well um, of high school. And so I was able to talk to her while she was deployed and it was in Iraq and she was working in one of the major hospitals in Iraq um, during the war. And yeah, so, so my mom was in the army and deployed while I was in high school, my um, junior and senior year. And so I was able to see what she did and hear the stories from her and what she was doing to help both um, our military, but also the population she was working with. And so made me really want to be a nurse and definitely be in the army and serve. So you served as a nurse in the army? Yes. Okay. What was that like? Um, it was hard at times. It was, it was definitely different than what I had imagined. I actually, I went through um, college I did this program called ROTC. So I went through college knowing that I was going to join the military and taking military classes and um, training with the military. And so, but when I actually joined, um, it was a lot different than what I had imagined. 
and it was very fulfilling. I made a lot of long-term friends that I'm still friends with, and it was like a family. And the patients that I was able to take care of were absolutely amazing. Um, it was just an honor to take care of so many people that had served and had sacrificed and the great stories that they tell. It, it was really nice. Wow. Yeah, that sounds special. So what was your daily, what did your daily life look like serving as a nurse in the army? Yeah, so my first position was here at Madigan Army Medical Center. And I was, I worked on a med surge oncology floor. And it also kind of also was the the long-term like end of life um, palliative floor as well. And so I got to see the death and dying process really up close and to be there with patients when they were in that final stage of life and also going through different kinds of chemotherapies. Um, we, we got a little bit of everybody up on the floor, but that was kind of what most of our patients um, had required. And it was, it was definitely eye-opening. Um, and actually very humbling because you get to see people um, at that end stage and the things that they wanna share and tell you about and the things that they've done during their life. It was very phenomenal. And to, to know that you're helping them um, transition into the next bigger and better thing um, was was actually really, I don't, know, I, don't, I don't know if I could think of the word for it. It was, heartbreaking but also uh very powerful yeah yeah like having this knowing that you're helping them with this peaceful transition made you feel at ease and made you feel like you were helping them and helping the world in a way for sure yeah I'm sure that's so special that you did that wow so was this a special like military hospital um, it was a, what they call an MTF, a medical um, treatment facility, so military treatment facility, uh, right. and um, it was just a, a bigger hospital, whereas the second hospital that I worked at was a very small community type hospital, and so at that hospital, the second place I went, which was um, Bunsen Army Health Center, and that was at um, Fort Leavenworth, Kansas, and so when I was there, it was um, very much a small hospital community um, focused, and we didn't have patients that had stayed overnight or um, some of those larger uh, medical needs. It was just kind of um, keeping wellness and, you know, checkups, things like that at the smaller hospital. Uh, okay, okay. And is there a difference between like regular hospitals, like, like Beaumont or Providence versus like the hospitals that you worked in? Uh, no, not really, except for that we, um, it's it's the same kind of framework. It's just a military hospital will take veterans and active duty service members, their spouses um, and their dependents. And so it's just the population is, is slightly different. But okay. if you can imagine that population, some of um, the diseases are a little bit higher in that population, you know, especially when you're talking like, World War II vets or um, Vietnam veterans era, you had a lot more cancer, a higher cancer rate, um, higher PTSD rates, but the population in itself has most of the disease variables that you see in like other populations. Mm -hmm. okay. Have you ever worked in other hospitals besides for 
like with the regular population, I guess, like non-military. <laughs> <laughs> so in school, when you're training, you do, um, you know, you go into a lot of civilian hospitals and you, you do your training while you're in nursing school. And so I kind of had that experience. Um, there's actually a lot more discipline, I would say, because mm-hmm. you're, um, you're working with veterans and you're working with active duty soldiers. So there's actually a little bit more discipline and a little bit more um, knowing, right? You, you kind of know um, what to expect a little bit more than maybe the civilian populations when people are coming in and maybe you don't have full records on them, they don't have healthcare, or they don't have some of that accountability pieces that our, our military members have. Oh, wow. Okay, that makes total sense, though. That definitely makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, I wonder if the patients um, at those at the military hospitals are easier to work with in a way because they've, they're used to that discipline, you know? Yeah, uh, I would say in in general, sometimes it depends. Um, I definitely think that you still get the array of patients probably, but um, at least on the floor in patients that have all of um, their decision-making uh, abilities and everything, those patients are very similar to the civilian population. It's sometimes a little bit um, harder to work in this population when those patients don't have those decision-making abilities and our inhibition because they are trained and mm-hmm. they're a little bit more rowdy or harder to take care of just because of their training behind them when they can't make those decisions or have that inhibition. Right. That makes sense. That makes sense. Okay. So based on the, the, the fact that you chose to go into, well, to, to, to work for the army, were there any sacrifices that you had to make? Uh, so going in, I really felt um, blessed to go in because they had paid for my, my education. So um, my undergrad degree. And yes, you, you did know going in that, you know, there was definitely the possibility of getting deployed um, at that time. Um, going into the military, I had one son, um, young young son, and then while I was in the military, I had two more. So I have three little guys and um, a husband, and he was also military. So kind of balancing that, you know, you, you don't always get to choose where the military sends you, um, and that there could be deployments or trainings, and that you would have to go and do that. So there's a little bit. Um, more to the military life, you know, definitely some things that you have to take into account. But uh, I think when you look at those, those responsibilities and the, what you get in return and who you get to work with, I definitely think that you, you get more than you take. Right, right. You get more than you give. Right. Oh, (laughs) that's, that's (laughs) yeah. I mean, so what are benefits? You know, like, what do you get? Yeah. So, I mean, first you get to work with a bunch of veterans. And so always um, that filled my heart because you're working with people who volunteered um, to serve this country, right? Who have this amazing past and history and feeling of loyalty to the country. And so to be able to take care of these these patients and a lot of patients who have been harmed in their in that course of action, um, 
it's just very humbling. And I feel very blessed to be able to take care of them. Uh, they also have the most amazing stories. And um, I think while I was up on the unit working, I maybe got like five or six different marriage proposals. Oh. And so, you know, there's a <laughs> great benefit to working on a floor as a nurse. And um, and then on top of it, the, it's this brotherhood, sisterhood of, of people that you're working with. And so uh, unlike, I think, a lot of civilian jobs, you're in this together with those people. And so no matter how ba bad your day is and how many patients you have and how crazy it is on the floor, you always know that they have your back and you are really a team and you feel that when you're working. And then also the military, you know, um, there's some stability to it, you know, just job and financially there's that stability. And so there's, there is a lot of benefits um, to working in the military. Wow. Okay. Yeah. It sounds like a lot of, a lot of the benefits are like emotional benefits, you know, social and emotional, which is really nice. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, I didn't have to pay for, for college. And so that was nice when right. I came out of it debt-free and yeah, able totally. to, to start my family without having that kind of weighing me down. And so that was really nice. For sure. Okay, cool. So I know that you have a story of um, discrimination and something that you went through. So I would love to hear that. Yeah, so all of the positives, you know, I, I went into the military loving the military life and having grown up in it, you know, really looking forward to a very full career um, going until pretty much I couldn't go anymore. And that was my goal is to stay in and retire out of the military. And um, my second duty station was at Munson Army Health Center. And I was a young first lieutenant, um, just bright-eyed and bushy-tailed, ready to take on the world. And because it was such a small community hospital, they went ahead and put me in a leadership position, which usually as a first lieutenant, you're not in those leadership positions just because at a bigger hospital, there's more people of higher rank. And so, but in a smaller um, hospital, sometimes you have to take those positions just because there aren't as many military members. And so I kind of, got thrown into this position that maybe wasn't quite, you know, kind of ready for um, as a first lieutenant and a lot of learning on the job type, <laughs> type of activities were going on. And so I was tasked as being the assistant um, clinical um, supervisor of the Department of Family Medicine. And then also part of that job was that I supervised the pediatric section and the EFMP in the hospital. And so EFMP stands for the Exceptional Family Member Program. And it's a program within the military that really um, focuses on dependents of that service member that maybe need extra healthcare, extra um, resources in that medical world. And really making sure that no matter where we put them um, within the military, you know, around the world, that they can access those, those resources. And that if they have a new diagnosis, that they're able to get those resources. And that we're just a point of contact and a liaison there between um, them and our military hospital and then the civilian hospitals um, close to us. And so that's really the, the mission of EFMP. 
And so really unique position and something that has a lot of added benefit, right? Like as a mom and I have three kids and thankfully my, my children are very healthy, but I could see how this program is so important to so many people and could really help to strengthen, um, to strengthen those resources and those family ties and to bring people, you know, in and, and take care of them under this military umbrella. And so I was really passionate about it and really actually excited to be in the EFMC program and, and looking over that kind of clinical aspect of it because I thought there was a lot of um, value added to the program. And when I started, the first thing that everybody said to me was, oh, you're taking over EFMP, I'm really sorry. And um, there was only one person, he was a social worker that um, I supervised in the EFMP program. And then under the Department of Family Medicine and Pediatrics, probably just under 10 people, um, military and civilian that I supervised. And then kind of my day-to-day -day job was just making sure that the pediatric clinic was running and that, you know, any administrative tasks were taken care of. And then I would cover down on the Department of Family Medicine um, tasks as well. Mm -hmm. And so um, it just, everything was going pretty well um, until I started to get more involved in the EFMP program. And I was pulled aside um, in the beginning and told that the EFMP program had really struggled and hadn't met some accreditation standards and that they needed almost a complete rehaul of the program. And so at that point, I really wasn't sure. I wasn't sure of the regulation. I had never worked in the EFMP before. So I wasn't really sure how to go about um, trying to straighten everything out and what right really looked like. And so I kind of dove in, dove into uh, all of the different, you know, SOPs and policies and what was what was happening here and what was happening at other places and how they kind of ran. And what I found was is that uh, the, the employee task, and he was a civilian employee, was just, um, was just not performing his job to standard and had been allowed to do this for a number of years. And so it was a really much bigger task than I had ever anticipated taking on. Right. And when I when I got into it and talked to him and said, okay, we kind of have to, you know, we didn't meet accreditation. We have to look at this program. How can we help these people that we're supposed to be helping and get back on track? And what can I do to help you? Yeah. So so I kind of get into this process and, and I'm a very hands-on person. Haven't had a lot of administrative um training or or experience and so I was just like how can I help you help me help them <laughs> you know I'm very <laughs> hands-on and very much uh, a people person and, and everything was going really well with the other aspects of the job and what I found right away was that he was very resistant he didn't like that I was a female he was like how did you get this position and I was like well I'm just tasked to be in this position I was much younger than the civilian employee. Um, he was in his 50s and I was in my 20s. And then also he didn't, he, I was pregnant at the time and he had made some comments about me being pregnant and me being gone and you know what was going to happen. It just didn't um, seem that he really appreciated that he had a female supervisor and 
on top of it um, that I was I was much younger than him. Mm-hmm. And so we kind of clashed right away. Um, you know, he, he had made comments about the program and uh, that he had been fine in the past and that he didn't need me and that he was just going, um, part, part of um, not meeting those accreditation standards, there was now a, a, another entity that was overlooking everything that he did and that he had to meet certain benchmarks to get off of this kind of probationary period. And he had just made comments like, well, I just want them off my back. I'm just going to do what they say and then go back to the way that I was doing things. And so those things didn't really sit well to me because I am very much like I want to take care of the population of those people that we're, we're trying to take care of. And, and their, their stories are so heart-wrenching. And these are people that, that need resources, that need people at their house to take care of them, that are trying to go overseas with their families and, and should be, be able to be kept together if that's what we can do right right and so to me my heart was in it because that could be my family next you know I could be that person needing those resources or wanting to stay together and trying to find this this place where we can all be together um, and still be in the military and um, so so I sat down and I talked to him and we went over the policies and and we tried to work together I tried to work with him but it was just this very um awful very um what's the word for it it was just it was always very stress relationship and a lot of conflict and everything I I felt on my end everything I had tried to to say or do or to get him help or to connect him to people was just taken as though I was attacking him and so for me, I, I didn't know what to do. And I went to my leadership and I said, you know, this is what's going on. This is the conflict. Um, he, he started to bully me very early on and, and say things about me to other people and kind of put me down. Like, you know, that I was young and I was a female and he didn't know what I was doing and that and somehow I was belittling him or, you know, me trying to help him build that program back up was, was um, putting him him down and so I went to my supervisor and I was like this is kind of what's going on you know what what should I do and and of course I was in the military and he was a civilian and she her advice was just to do nothing she was like listen he is unionized um the union can take your rank is exactly what she said to me she's like just fix the program on your own and you're going to leave in two years and just leave the union could take your rank. So in the military, we have rank. And so her advice to me was just to not do anything, to not to not um, try to confront him about his behaviors or to to try to really fix um, any in any comprehensive way the program, but to instead kind of just make the program float and to let it be somebody else's problem long-term, right? At least that's how I saw it. If you're not really making any any change and really addressing those issues, then you're just waiting for this to to blow up on somebody else's watch, right? Wow. And it, that, I was just like, no, who does that? No, I don't. If I, I really felt that if I was doing the right thing, if in my heart, I knew that I was trying to help and I wasn't um, doing anything that was unethical, unmoral, or against any regulation, I felt that I sh- that it wasn't right of me to just let this go on. Um, 
for those patients, right, that need those that help for that population out there that was struggling, that wasn't getting what they needed from him, but also for my brothers and sisters in arms that would come after me, uh, that they should have to deal with such a huge problem because I felt kind of bewildered that I was dealing with it after this had been going on for such a long time that nobody had stepped up and really tried to fix it beforehand. Right. And so I, I, you know, listened to her and I said, okay, but I went ahead and um, went to my mentors that I really trusted and people in my life that, that I knew had um, good morals and ethics. And they were like, Katie, this is part of your position. This is what you were tasked to do. It's a hard job and you're not gonna be everybody's favorite. Um, as a supervisor, that's always the case, right? You have to make those tough decisions, but they're the right decisions. And so as long as you're in those, those you know, ethical bounds and regulation bounds, you need to go forward and do the job you were tasked to do. And so that, that's what I did. And the more that I moved forward in that, um, it turned into, in, in that position, you know, I had to put him pretty much on a warning that he wasn't doing his job correctly, the standard, and then um, trying to help him um, look at those deficiencies and really build up what he was doing and, and to correct those actions. And every time that I had to be more involved and that I had to have more communication with him, that that situation just really deteriorated and was very hostile to the point where he would try to come after me yelling and screaming. Um, I, at one point, I think this was maybe four or five months before I was attacked. I was in the office, this office space, and it was behind two locked doors. And it was in the corner of a hospital that nobody had really gone to. And I was looking for a file in the cabinet and I noticed somebody's name who I had interviewed and, and I was like, well, this, this file should be somewhere else. You know, it should be already through the process and these people should have these resources that they need, right? And so I picked up the file and as soon as I start to talk, he comes over my back because I, he was behind me and he starts screaming at me and using profanities and, and telling me to put down the file that it was his file and I shouldn't touch anything. And I was like, yeah, I'm a pretty confident person. And I was like, no, this needs to be done. Let's look through this. Let's see what needs to be done and let's take care of it. We can't, you know, th th this information doesn't belong to you. It belongs to these people and they're, they're waiting for these resources. Right. We really need to do what's right. And this turned into him um, like coming towards me and being very aggressive and screaming at me. And I really felt at that point that he was going to hit me. And so as I backed up, I had called, um, we have like a, a walkie talkie, it's called a Bocera in the, um, in the setting, but it's almost like a walkie talkie where you can talk to other people on it. And it's uh, like a little piece of equipment on your jacket. And so I had called my supervisor at that point who is still there. And he could, you can, other people can hear the conversation. And so I told um, the, my attacker's name was Curry, um, Mr. Curry. I told him, I said, okay, I'm calling my supervisor. This is inappropriate. I don't feel safe. And I, and I called my supervisor. And at that point he kind of snapped out of it and stopped coming towards me and, um, and instead slammed his door. And when my supervisor came down, you know, he was like, what happened? And, and I explained to him, I was like, I don't feel safe. This, 
his office is not safe. You know, his behavior is not safe and something, something is going to happen. And, and I don't feel okay about this. And at that point, um, that had been the most aggressive, you know, he had yelled and screamed at me and said things and bullied me, but that was the first time he's actually come after me. And I felt that he was going to hit me, that it was going to become um, physical instead of just psychological and verbal at that point. And um, what what happened at, at the end of this was that all the all the um, supervisors did, all the hospital you know administrators did, was move him closer to my office upstairs, so he was no longer behind two locked doors. So I had moved him upstairs. Um, but but there wasn't really any repercussion, you know, they, they didn't, it was just, okay, Katie, go ahead and keep doing what you were doing. There was really nothing, you know, nobody had sat down and been like, hey, this behavior is inappropriate, you can't do this. They were just like, hey, you're, you're the supervisor, um, you just need to keep going through this process. And, and that was kind of the end of the story. And um, and, and there was kind of a lot of mixed messages and the whole thing was very toxic. I mean, he had gone to some of the hospital administrators and instead of confronting this man and saying, hey, your behavior isn't okay, we don't tolerate this. Um, as an employee, these, this is the professional standards that you need to upheld. Um, what was said to him was, well, we'll look into getting you a different supervisor. We'll, we'll look into, maybe you can have somebody different supervise you and maybe that will help you and so there was really no backing for me and not only am I a very young supervisor but at this point I'm feeling very lost and alone and like this very dangerous situation and I'm just kind of left out to the wolves right mm -hmm. and I had this very frank conversation after that event and I said I don't feel safe I don't want to be alone with this man um, please help me and I said and so we sat down and with this hospital administration, I was like, I don't feel safe. It's not whether he's going to do this, it's, it's at what point is he going to attack me? And I, I, I did in my heart know that this was just escalating and this was unsafe. And they kept being like, oh, it's fine. You're just a new supervisor. You know, this is a tough situation, but you're going to get through it. This is going to look really good on your evaluation when you're all done, because think of all that work and think of the things that you're dealing with at this very young stage in your career. And that's when I went to the um, security office and explained what had happened and asked for help. Um, I was told to put my phone in my pocket and record conversations. And then when I asked, like, okay, I want somebody with me at all times. It, at no point was any of this easy or any of this was um, kind of like a no brainer to me, but they were like, yeah, um, you need to find somebody and ask them and then ask him and then coordinate. And so they didn't even give me what I felt was the most basic safety, um, safety nets in place, right? Of like having somebody with me to protect myself and to protect against the things that he was saying about me at that point. And so it was just, it was just this very toxic situation. The chain of command wasn't supportive. I wasn't getting the resources that I needed and I felt afraid. But then again, I'm military. And so it's not in a civilian job. You can say like, okay, go fly a kite. I'm not coming in anymore. I'm going to find a new position in the military. You can't do that. Um, you're, you're bound, right? You have to 
can't just leave your job. And, um, and on top of that, if you do leave your job, it, it, it looks kind of, if I would say, I, I just can't work for this in this environment anymore. Not only am I handing this off to somebody else, um, a bigger problem, you know, to somebody else, but now also that kind of looks badly on me um, because I'm still kind of within that um, administration, but just in a different position. Mm -hmm. And so it was a very difficult situation. And um, as time went on and after that first kind of incident, things just continued to escalate. And I continued to try to bring the information to my chain of command um, about, I want to say a week or two before the incident itself, I had brought a stack and it, I mean, it was literally three different binders full of all the information, um, all the memorandums I had collected from my time working with Mr. Curry. And I, it was my cry for help. It was my last ditch effort to try to get somebody to listen, to get some kind of support because I felt at that point that he was so threatening that he, he was going to attack me, that he was saying things that put up red flags, um, such as that he felt he was being backed into a corner. He was complaining about me telling other people un, unknowingly to me, but I knew things were going on. But he had told other people in the office that he was going to, quote, take care of me. And, and, and so I didn't know that, but I knew he was talking about me to other people and saying inappropriate things. Um, scary. And yeah, yeah, it was really scared. And, you know, I just brought everything into the supervisor's office. I dropped it on his desk and I was like, help me. You know, he is, he is, he's going to kill me. I use those exact words. He's going to kill me, help me. And I said, this is all the, the threats. This is all of the, the, different incidents that have happened over the past year I need help and it wasn't only me that he was threatening it was now at this point patients and other people that he had worked with and it was just getting completely out of control and um, my my supervisor looked at me and he said come to me with facts not emotions and I and I was fine because I was just grasping for straws at that point just hoping that somehow I didn't have to be in this situation where I knew he was going to hurt me. And I went home and I, and I talked to my husband that night and I was just, you know, you feel this, this complete loss of any hope that you possibly had. And there was no, for me, there was no way getting out of this situation. I knew I just had to keep going in and just hoping and, and trying to pull together any safety nets that I could personally do to protect myself. And yeah. You know, I had gone to security and been like, can I bring a pocket knife? Can I bring mace? Can I, anything? Can you have a security guard near the door? Like, what can I do? Because I know this man is going to attack me. And about two weeks later, um, there's a lot of signs in between. He had, you know, these red flags where he was joyous and happy. He stopped doing any of his work. Um, he was like whistling in the hallways. He was saying really odd things and sending odd emails, um, t- like referring to himself in the third person, but also sending things that were completely inappropriate up to the chain of command and beyond, saying that I was trying to like somehow get his position and, and just these really weird things were going on, right? 
Mm-hmm. And to me, as a nurse, you know, red flag, like something has changed. Much like somebody who is going to commit suicide, you see these really extreme changes, right? Almost what it seems like overnight, where their whole trajectory changes. And that's what I was seeing. And I kept telling people, like, something isn't right. Something is happening. Um, you know, in suicide patients, you can say, well, maybe at that point they have a plan or they've come to terms that they, they want to kill themselves, you know, suicidal ideation, and now they have a plan. And in this situation, I didn't quite know how to put it into words, but I just knew that there were so many red flags and that this trajectory has really changed. Mm-hmm. And I shared this with my direct supervisor and been like, this is what I'm seeing. It, it feels to me really suspicious, like something else is going on. And um, that day when I was working in the morning, um, my husband and I had carpooled into work together and I had come in and there was an incident in the morning time. Um, There was some kind of um, document that needed to go up to hire. And I got an email saying that he hadn't turned it in yet. And when he did turn it in to me, because um, at this point, everything kind of had to be checked and funneled through me. Um, he did turn it into me. The numbers were wrong. And of course, I'm pretty hands-on. So even though I, I don't feel safe, and at this point, I really don't want to work with this man. To be honest, I don't want to work with this man because he's threatened me and bullied me so much that I'm afraid of him. But I sat him down and I was like, hey, come to my office. We'll just fix it together real quick. And then we can send it off. Because I still need to work with him and I still right. wanted to help him. And I, and I wanted to help those people that were relying on us. And so when he was in my office and we're working on um, this document and we're putting in numbers and I'm kind of doing it for him and, and just having him observe it to see like, okay, where were the, the issues? And at the end of it, you know, I'm going through it and, and I wasn't upset at all. I was just trying to get this done. Right. <laughs> And so I say like, okay, do you understand what happened? Or do you understand what these issues were? You know, is there anything I can help you with? And he starts screaming at me. And he's like, you, you're the problem. You're the problem. And just is screaming at me in my face. And I'm like, okay, like, are you kidding me right now? I just spent all this time, like pretty much doing your work. You know, I don't say this, but I'm thinking it like, I don't, I don't want to work with you, but I'm doing all of this to try to help you. And I just spent all this time trying to like mentor and and, and to help you with this, this document. And you're screaming at me and telling me that, that I was the issue where, you know, this is a, it was a spreadsheet. It was just numbers, right. calculating numbers. And so I had asked him to leave and he went to my door at that point and said, no, come with me, come to my office. I need to show you something. And it just sat with me really long. I just, I just sat there and I was like, you never want me to come to your office. Cause he was, he was um, very disorganized and he had stuff everywhere. And it always was very difficult to go to his office because you saw paper from every patient everywhere. And, um, and I was like, no, I'm not coming to your office. Like this conversation needs to be done at this point because I'm upset, you're upset. We just need to separate and, and think about, you know what I mean? You need, yeah. You're not being professional. I'm not helping you any longer. And he kept saying it, like, come to my office, come to my office. And I was like, nope, you know, you need to leave. And if you don't leave, I'm going to call security. And he knew I was serious about it because I had done it before. And so he left my office and I kind of continued through my day 
um, you know, I talked to my supervisor about the incident and kind of told her how it really didn't sit well with me because for the first time it felt like he was trying to to take me into his office. And I was like, I don't know what that's about, but it didn't feel right. And, um, you know, didn't have any other contact with him throughout the day. Went about, you know, until um, the end of the duty day. And he he had this um, habit of always staying in his office late. And so I was told um, by our human resources that I had to go and, you know, talk to him and, and make sure that he left on time because he was unionized and that he wasn't authorized pretty much to stay and put in extra hours. And so at this point, I just went into his office and his door was closed. So I knocked and I opened his door and he was just glazed over sitting there staring at his computer. And I was like, you know, Mr. Curry, and I had somebody with me. Um, I had another doctor from before with me. And I was just like, you know, it's time to go. It's the duty day is done. Don't worry, we'll get these documents in tomorrow. You know, we'll work on it tomorrow. And um, I left his door open. And as uh, we were walking away, you know, that, that doctor was kind of bringing up some of his concerns with having Mr. Curry on the floor and some of the incidents and how it made the staff feel uneasy. Mm-hmm. And as we were walking back, you know, he went back to his office, I went back to mine, and they were only maybe three offices apart. We weren't very far apart. And but most of the people um, in that unit had gone home. So it was very, you know, at that time, um, most people go home as soon as uh, four o'clock hits. And so everybody was gone and it was just kind of the military folks left, right? Or some of the doctors um, finishing up notes. And I was working late. I it was maybe about half an hour later. And I had seen Curry through the corner of my eye um, walking down the hall. And I figured he was leaving that way. And he came back and he stopped in my office door and my kind of my office, like the door was on the side and he would have been facing my side. I would have been sitting right in front of him. And at that point, um, he he just stopped and was staring at me and he looked very angry. And so I was like, in my head, oh God, here we go again. You know, he's going to yell and scream at me and tell me whatever he wanted to say, but it was going to be this conflict again, right? And instead what he did is he stepped into my office and started to um, empty the contents of this water bottle on me. And before I could do anything, I smelled it and I and I knew it was gasoline. As, as soon as I smelled it, I was like, this is not water. You know, and you go through that panic in your head, oh like, gosh. what do you do, you know? And I'm oh in this gosh. tiny little office and he's in my doorway, so I can't escape. And I, I, I think I said something, you know, like, you don't have to do this, don't do this. And before I could even get out of my chair, he had thrown matches at me. And I just remember my whole um, upper body, my face, because I was sitting and he was standing. So most of it was my face and um, my hair and hair, like my hair kind of crackling and my, my everything catching on fire. And, um, and I couldn't see. And so, and I couldn't get out of the door because he was standing there. And so I, I just kind of put my hands out and started screaming, trying what I thought was to get out of the door because I 
just knew at that point that I was going to die, that there was just no way that I was going to live through this. I had, you know, I didn't have my vocera on at this point. I couldn't talk to anybody. I knew that all of the floors are cement and that burn injuries, you know, you just put an accelerant on me. So all this is kind of like brushing through my head, right? And I ran out the door and I started to scream, hoping that somebody was still around, you know, and in my mind, I went down the hall and started banging on the door of the doctor trying to get that way because of course I can't see because I knew that, you know, the doctor was the last person that I had seen in the, in that unit. And um, I, I feel somebody, you know, what feels like felt like forever for me I, I feel somebody start to tap me until like screaming at me and saying like you know Katie Katie and um I could hear the voice and it was one of the other physicians on the floor and they were trying to put me out and um and I couldn't see a lot and and at that point I started to feel somebody pushing me and kicking me and like I kind of opened and closed my eyes and I saw Mr. Curry was back and he now had a straight blade and this huge scissors, like an industrial size scissors and was stabbing at me and stabbing at the person that was, was trying to take care of me. And, uh, to, you know, to, to put the fire out because I'm still on fire. And um, it became this like, very uh, awful situation where we were all struggling. He had um, gotten me to the ground, you know, kicked me and hit me and was stabbing at me. And I put my hand up and we're all on the ground, kind of like just, you know, in a little like scurry. And um, I just remember looking up and he was still standing at that point and he was stomping on my neck with his foot. He was just like kicking my head and stomping on me. And um, I just remember screaming and, and thinking like, this is it. There's no way I'm on fire. He's stabbing me. I can feel him stabbing at me and, and trying to put my hands up and to protect myself. But um, through that, there, there was a moment where it just all stopped. And I looked to the side and I could see my NCO, um, uh, enlisted soldier that I had worked with. And he had grabbed Mr. Curry and had him bear hugged on the floor. And Miss um, Killian and Dr. Ganesius, two of the physicians on the floor, were trying to put me out. And after they had, had put me out initially, I just, I, I was so scared. I just started screaming, like, get him out of here, get him out of here, you know, yeah. please save me. And he was just sitting there and I was, you know, of course, yelling at him and he was smiling. He was just watching me. And of course I knew how, I was like, I didn't know how burned I was, but I knew that I was burned enough where I was starting to feel cold and like this extreme amount of pain. And I knew it wasn't a good situation. And I, and I, I honestly just felt like, I don't know if I'm gonna make it out of this. And so finally they took him to the side, you know, took him to a different room. And at that point I probably laid on that concrete floor and I, and I just thought, uh, you know, I was going to die. So I asked them to call my husband and I just thought about my kids. And that, that was really the hardest part for me is, yeah, I was in a lot of pain, 
but I thought about my three little boys who, you know, wouldn't have a mom potentially, who wouldn't, I wouldn't be there to see them grow up and to see the kind of people that they were going to be. And, um, and all these things that I was going to miss out in life, you know? Yeah. It was so hard because I was like, was this worth it? You know what I mean? Like at the end of the day, all I was trying to do was to, to do the task that I was given. And it was a job. It was, you know, and now I'm sitting here and I thought I was dying and I would have died if it wasn't for the great care, you know, the people that were there that had put the fire out and who had coordinated everything and gotten me to the hospital um, right away. Um, from from the attack, I, I have 20% um, total, total body surface burns, uh, third degree. Um, and uh, my face, my face was very much deformed um, because of the burns and the accelerant that was used. And so I have half of my face is grafted and then my neck and my arms and hands. Um, so it's been what, four years? Um, that happened in 2016. And so it's it's been a really long journey with hundreds, hundreds of surgeries uh, since, since then. Um, different, you know, once you get the initial graft, grafting done, what happens is, is that your body a lot of times either builds a lot of scar tissue and it makes these um, really awful contractures that kind of bound you down so that you can't, like in my neck, it's really bad. And so you can't move your head like you want to or look up in the sky anymore. And for a long time, I couldn't like hold my boys because my hands and my body just ached so badly that I couldn't feel anything anymore. Wow, what a nightmare. Oh my God, that is a crazy story. I mean, wow. Like these these things actually happen. It's just unbelievable. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. And that's, you know, and I talk about it a lot now. But I, I always say that, like, you always think it's not going to happen to you or that this bad situation could not possibly get any worse. But unfortunately, if there's no accountability and no kind of safety nets for people, these things do happen and they're crazy. And, you know, I tell people what happened to me and they're like, no, I'm like, yeah, this happened because when people don't intervene, when there's not safety nets put into place, these things can happen. Right. So after this happened, okay, I have so many questions to ask you, but first of all, after this happened, like what, what happened to this guy, Mr. Curry? Like did the super, and what happened to the hospital in general? Like, did they change anything? So I'll start with Mr. Curry. So after it happened, um, it was on military land, um, at a military facility and it was governed um, by the, um, federal side of the house. And so he went to federal prison. I want to say why it took uh, two years, two years um, in the process of getting him sentenced. Unfortunately, in the federal system, the maximum uh, penalty for attempted murder is only 20 years. In the civilian side in states, um, that there's usually not only a, a sentence for attempted murder, but then there's things that can add time to your sentence based on um, the kind of um, tools you use to try to commit that murder, right? And so arson being one of the ones that really increased that amount of time. But in the federal system, there's none of that. And so he, he 
we tried to give him a plea deal. He wouldn't take the plea deal. And it was pretty, I want to say it was like 18 years or 17 years that we offered him. The federal um, judge did, or my attorney, I guess. And so he didn't take that. And we went through the trial, which was horrendous and difficult. And um, in the trial itself, it was so hard because he wasn't saying that he didn't do it. You know, he couldn't fight and say like, I didn't do it because it came out that everything was premeditated and he was actually looking at different ways to kill me and had different plans. And that day, actually, he had tried to get me into his office because his plan was to cut my throat. He yeah. had that straight blade and his plan was, was to block me in his office and to cut my throat. And he was looking up um, different search engines, you know, how how long it took to bleed out of a carotid artery, um, how deep you had to cut somebody to bleed out. And um, so it came out that, you know, he had several plans of action to try to kill me and that he had been researching it for about five months of this whole thing. And so um, he, he did go to jail. Um, he got the maximum sentence, which was 20 years, which is is not justice, if you ask me. That's something that I would definitely like to change because when you think about my sentence, this is a life sentence for me, for my right. kids, for my family who to this day, you know, are caring for me through different surgeries and um, caring through the trauma of all of this happening. You know, my boys will ask me, why, why did that bad man do that? Why would somebody want to do that to my mom? What, yeah. you know, mama, you're you help people, you're a nurse, why would somebody want to do that to you? And so definitely something that I would like to change in the future. So 20 years and then um, went through that process. Um, I was, I had to retire out of the military because not only did I feel completely let down, right? At that point, I was so angry because I felt there was no accountability that all of this had happened to me. And that I knew the worst part was that I knew it was going, like something was going to happen and that nobody tried to help me through it, right? There was no safety net, there was no change. And then after what happened to me, I felt even more let down because I was in a burn unit and then taken to a warrior transition battalion and recovering. And in that time frame, nothing had happened. You know, the only tangible thing that was changed during that time frame was is that they put a bulletproof, uh, fireproof door on the command thing so that if all else fails, right, our command can survive an attack, but all of the other employees will screw you, right, because you're not that important. So that was the only thing done. There wasn't this sweeping policy change. There wasn't any type of um, mending this really broken and fractured system that had allowed this to happen. Instead, they were thinking about themselves and how can we protect our command? Right. And so I just felt, I felt let down in so many, you know, and, and being a little girl and looking, looking forward to and loving, like loving the military and feeling that it was a greater purpose. Um, I felt so let down. I just wanted to get out of the military, to be honest. I just, I, I felt like it was a sham, right? That everything that I, that, that they would take care of me, that we take care of each other. And that's, this organization is there to do 
to do good, right? And that there's a sense of accountability just was no longer there for me. And, um, you know, let me be honest, I, I love the military and my, my husband is still active duty. But for me, that was like a kick in, you know, a kick in the gut yeah. after everything had happened. And I just couldn't, I couldn't support an organization that, that allowed this to happen. For sure. That's very understandable. So, and, and to answer, you know, what happened to that chain of command? What happened because of this incident? And I, and I think a true, the true characteristics of an organization is not that nothing ever happens, right? Not that anything bad ever happens to an organization, but what that organization does when it's faced with these challenging circumstances. And, and part of that is that what did the military do in response to this very awful event? There is no new, um, you know, policy that is coming out. There's no programs in place to help people that were in my position. There's, there's no safety nets put into place. There's nothing um, systemic that has happened because of what it only, it's not only me, it's other people that have gone through exactly what I have gone through and continue to go through it. Right. That's just, that's just awful. I mean, was there any sort of like suing that you tried to yeah. So when I, I knew it was negligence from the beginning, right? And so I contacted an attorney. As soon as I got out of the hospital, I was like, contacted OSHA, contacted an attorney and was like, no, this, you know, I, I didn't deserve to have this happen to me. Uh, how there needs to be some accountability and that my family needs to be taken care of because at that point, you know, as soon as I had gotten out of the hospital, they were like, okay, you're going to be medically retired. The, the VA will take care of you. Bye. And that was kind of the conversation that I got. And I was like, oh, whoa, whoa, whoa. The VA doesn't pay my, you know, the full, like, I'm not, I'm not going to be able to work in this condition. And the VA is not going to reimburse me for all these lost wages that I'm going to have. And through the federal um, system, the man who attacked me, I, I ended up with no kind of retribution. I ended up with no getting nothing from that case because he had nothing. So he had short sealed his house and his wife took the rest and there was nothing there. So I was awarded uh, almost $4 million, but I w- was never going to receive any of it because he didn't have any money. Mm. And so in the military, I really didn't want money. I just wanted them to put in a, to action some kind of safety program that wouldn't allow this to happen to other people. And um, when that didn't happen, of course, then I was like, then at least make sure my family is taken care of, right? Like I'm yeah. struggling, I'm, I'm struggling to um, pay, pay bills because now I'm at all these surgeries. My husband's working full time. I can't afford to have somebody watch my children while I'm going to surgery. I can't do the things I used to be able to do around the house. You know, mm-hmm. it's just all very overwhelming. And uh, what I learned was that there was no way to get any kind of compensation from the military because of what is called Ferris Doctrine, which was a 1950s um, Supreme Court ruling that in, in short kind of, um, said that because we are military, that the military then, if I was active duty at the time um, of the incident, 
So therefore the military has this blanket immunity. If anything happens on active duty that is part of um, duty, part of you know your, your um, service to the country. And so the military, no matter how negligent they are, has this blanket immunity. And so this bars me from any kind of um, suit against the military itself. That is so messed up. Yeah, and, and including the people that had directly said these things to me and directly failed me and were, were negligent. I have no suit against them either because they are covered by the Ferris Doctrine. Wow. Did they say anything to you? Like, I'm sorry? Uh, yes, several high-ranking members said that they were sorry. But I guess my take on that is I don't, you, you need to walk the walk. You know, right, right. saying sorry to me isn't going to change anything. If, if they were indeed sorry, um, if there was any kind of um, feeling of of loss or feeling of that th- this organization did wrong, then instead of saying sorry, I, w- I wanted some kind of action. I wanted them to put in place a very comprehensive program so that other people going through this, that Katie, five years ago, wouldn't have had to go through what I went through. And, and not just the attack itself, but all of the toxic environment and the bullying that had happened prior to that. And I guess what what kills me inside is that those words, you know, there there used to be this, this accountability or I, I would imagine, right, from my grandpa and great grandpa and what my mom says, there used to be this type of accountability in the military. But now... We just hide everything under the rug and hope that it doesn't surface and, and say these niceties instead of trying to fix this process. Wow. What a story. That's crazy. We have to go through. What a nightmare. Yeah, it's definitely been a long road. Yeah. So how did you, let's talk about you for a minute, like how you dealt with this. How did you get through this, you know, because I'm sure that took so I'm sure that drained you like emotionally, physically, you know, so how did you get back to yourself and feel empowered, you know? So it took me a really long, really, really long time. And I was so angry at first that um, I couldn't see past any anything else. I couldn't see past. I was just so upset that you know, I had taken down every photo of my house. Like I couldn't um, look at myself in the mirror. I couldn't hold my children. I couldn't go outside anymore. You know, just these basic things that I had totally taken for granted before I couldn't do. And so I was so angry at this system and um, through a lot of therapy and, and time and healing and my family support, I was able to see, um, to kind of focus that anger. It's not that I would say, it's not that I'm not angry, um, you know, anymore, but we're focusing like, okay, this happened and, and I am angry and it shouldn't have happened, but what can I do now to be that change that I want to see? Because I, I knew at some point um, that I could just sit at home and stew and be angry and be miserable about it, or I could do something. And so I think that I just chose the path of, okay, you know, I just got this really big task in front of me. And what do I, where do I start to try, try to change this and to make it better from what I can do? Right. So what gives me a lot of purpose, I guess. (laughs) 
for sure for sure absolutely yeah I mean I think turning things around like that thinking about other people absolutely like is just the healthy outlook and for sure helps helps you essentially as well you know yeah and it's been therapeutic for me you know hearing people's stories and how um me sharing my story has given them the ability and the courage and and just the um you know feeling like no this isn't right I am going to say something I'm going to make a change where I'm at and so that I, I really do that's therapeutic for me and hearing how um, people have reacted to my story and their personal stories and what we can do to change has been has been great. Right. So is that how you would say that you is that is that the purpose of sharing your story? Is that how you help others? Um, is that what you hope that others will gain from this? Like to to go ahead and protect themselves and stand up for themselves? Yeah, definitely. Um, and and not only that, but to to demand change, to to not ask anymore, but to demand that things change for us, um, for females, for military members, for healthcare staff, you know, wherever you are in this world, to demand change because we deserve better. We deserve a healthy environment. And and not only sharing my story, but I'm, I'm now, I've just completed my master's and I'm halfway through my PhD program um, in, in nursing science and so really focusing on workplace violence prevention and what are tangible actions and interventions that we can make to decrease violence in the workplace and so that's kind of my next step is to work um you know towards putting out more information and more tangible um, items, actions that people can do to keep themselves safe and for um, policy change, right? For organizations to change policies, to put in these programs, to take it seriously um, before it gets to, you know, where somebody is being physically attacked to really change it and be proactive about it and change the whole trajectory of violence. Oh, wow. That's amazing. Congratulations on your PhD. Thanks. Working through it slowly but surely. (laughs) (laughs) That's so exciting. Wow. It's so inspiring to to speak with you and hear your story because your whole tone is about like, what could I do to improve things, make things better for other people? And how could I use my story to help others? You know, so that's something I really appreciate about you. Thank you. Yeah. I think when you see organizations fail to do it, then you just have to pull up your bootstraps, right? And just do it yourself. Fine. You don't want to do it. We're going to do it ourselves and we're going to make a better um, environment for ourselves because it's the only way to do it, right? Absolutely. For sure. For sure. Wow. Okay. By the way, how did your husband deal with this the whole time? It was extremely hard for him and um, it was extremely hard and he was angry for a long time. You know, Um, he was actually after the medical staff, he, he got there while I was before I was even transferred to the hospital. And so, you know, to see me going through this situation and it was almost a year long of struggling and um, being bullied and, and having this toxic environment and then seeing me laying on that ground, um, you know, burnt and bleeding and stab wounds, he, he it was very difficult for him. And it's been a long journey for him. Um, and he's still in the military. And, and I know that he talks about me a lot and shares with other people, like, this is my wife and this is what she went through. And this is why I take every, you know, every kind of incident or um, report seriously, because you have to. 
Wow. For sure. For sure. Yeah, I hope that the army learned their lesson from this in your story. Uh, I would I would say that they haven't. <laughs> but, <laughs> but I hope that someday we can work towards policy change. And I think that there's always hope for the future. And when new um, administrators come in and new top brass come in, um, policy change is always, always hopeful, right? You can always hope for it. Right. And um, thank God, you know, your story is inspiring women to at least um, take, you know, hold their, I guess, hold their own and, and take the power into their own hands to do something, right? Yeah. Yeah. And to really push for these changes because there, there's so much needed, not just in the military and not just in healthcare, but, you know, in every work workplace. Right. For sure. Absolutely. Okay. So I think we're going to like end off now. (laughs) So let me ask you the question that I ask everybody before we end (laughs) off, which is what is something that you hope that the next generation of women won't have to struggle with? I hope that the next generation of of women will really um, feel safe in their workplace and be heard in their workplace, right? When they have a problem to be taken seriously. Um, and, and to not have to deal with these toxic work environments and bullying and this um, escalation of violence that we're having to deal with in our, our places of work right now. Yes, for sure. For sure. That's a beautiful <laughs> sentiment, for sure. For sure. It's so important because, I mean, I don't know the percentage, but there are millions of women, let's put it like this, there are millions of women who are working, going to work every day, and it's so important that they feel safe. Yes, definitely. And, you know, in the healthcare field, when you look at healthcare, um, acts of, of violence in the, you know, workplace violence is five times higher in healthcare than any other private industry. So, and healthcare is very much, um, you know, a lot of women within that field. So. Oh, wow. That's interesting. Okay. And Katie, where can people find you if they want to learn more about you or connect with you? Yeah, so my website is wpvsolutions.org. Um, and you can go to my website. I also have a Facebook page, Katie Ann Blanchard, and um, they can find me there. And I'm um, happy to help. Thank you. Okay, I'm going to um, link all the all that information in the show notes. Thank you so much for joining me tonight and sharing your story. I really appreciate it. Yeah, well, thank you for having me. That's all for tonight. Thanks so much for listening. Connect with us on Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok at Carmela Cosmetics. That's Carmela with a K. And on our website, CarmelaCosmetics.com. If there's a woman in your life whose story needs to be heard, send me a message to let me know who she is and why she means so much to you. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review. We'd love to hear from you. We'd love to know your thoughts. We want you to feel heard. 